Sky, you bring us in. All right. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It's our first week back together. So much fun. Is it? It is. And it's marked by the first week of session. The first day of session. It wasn't really a week of session. No. We're easing into it. We had a great swearing-in ceremony on Wednesday, and it's so great just to know that we're in it, right? This is what we do, and I love it, and I'm looking forward to them coming back in two weeks. But yeah, our first week together, it's been nice reuniting with you. Yes. So the first day of session came with some news. Speaker Tim Moore and the leadership in that chamber is going to have a rule change going into this 2023 session. So let's be clear. Right now, we are under temporary rules. Those rules were introduced yesterday, the swearing-in ceremony, very much a housekeeping issue. You got to have rules and how you come back into session in a couple weeks and all of this. But in that rule package is a rule that's going to make it easier for Speaker Moore, to override a veto by Governor Roy Cooper. We know there's going to be a lot of issues that they disagree on. No secret, no change there. But this year, they have better numbers. They, being the Republicans, have better numbers in the House. They have what we call a working supermajority. But this rule change, very controversial. It is. And I thought about it last night because the way the rule had previously been written it allowed notice that you were going to take an override vote but what they had been doing in the past was providing that notice and then not taking the vote so essentially in my from my perspective it's the same thing they were doing in other sessions you could bring it up at any time as long as you said hey we're going to bring this up Yeah, because they were just keeping it on the calendar. I think this is where it's probably a little different. Speaker Moore sees that someone is not in their chair. Maybe they went to the bathroom. Maybe they went to make a telephone call. And he could immediately pull this veto out and put it on the floor for a vote. And the way I understand it, Sky, under the old rule, it went to the bottom of the calendar. Yeah, the other portion of that rule allows him to move around the calendar. And that's another thing that he usually says, without objection, we're going to hear this first or something like that. But it wouldn't allow for that objection. It was maybe a sour spot in a very sweet day on Wednesday. We're going to get into kind of what Even Representative Robert Reeves said he opposed some things in that rule package, but yesterday or Wednesday was not the day to talk about it. Yeah, we don't want to air our dirty laundry right in front of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? Like laughs> 
yesterday, we're recording this on Congress Thursday. says otherwise. Yeah, yeah, this is not Congress. This is not Congress. So we, we still maintain some civility in the General Assembly. But uh, the way it works, we got a lot of questions about this when we were over in the General Assembly for the swearing-in ceremonies is about these temporary rules, and then they will become permanent rules. So these rules are in effect for another two or three weeks. We think in early February, Chairman Destin Hall, rules chairman, will present these rules, and then that is when we will have debate. Now, there could be some behind-the-scenes maneuverings. Does Uh, Leader Reeves have some bargaining to do with the Republicans. You know, we really haven't seen a lot of that uh, in recent opening day sessions, but uh, it could could happen. Over on the Senate side, they are maintaining their rule, which (laughs) is we'll give you notice. We'll let you know when it's coming. Someone has to inform Minority Leader Dan Blue that there's going to be a veto override. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they've got 30 Republicans, and that's all they need to override any veto. But great And the day. Senate rules did pass unanimously. Yep, they did. Yeah. By the way, uh, Speaker Moore was reelected Speaker almost by unanimous acclamation. Sounds like there were a few dissents. Yeah, it was a voice vote, so yeah. we don't have recorded votes on that. Yeah. I'll put my bet that Representative Deb Butler did not <laughs> vote for Speaker Moore. What was interesting about the Speaker vote was part of the pomp and circumstance is that there are members who present the speaker. There are members who present the pro tem down the aisle. They walk them down the middle aisle and Speaker Moore had some Republicans and also three particular Democrats who walked him down the aisle. Yeah, actually four. One was Representative Robert Reeves. Now that is tradition. That is the culture of both chambers is to have the minority leader walk down the speaker or the president pro tem. But it was curious that Representative Trisha Cotham, who is returning to the General Assembly after some time off from Matthews, North Carolina, she walked the speaker down. There was Representative Shelley Willingham, Edgecombe County, Democrat, and Representative Michael Ray. Some have identified those three as possible votes for House Republicans on various bills. I think everyone could assume they're probably going to be on board for the budget, except for Robert Reeves, by the way. Robert Reeves is going to be the loyal opposition, but the three we listed after Robert Reeves. Could they be with him on some abortion bills? Could they be with him on some of the other controversial bills? It really was a tip of the cards. Yes. (laughs) And we all noticed But it was a great day in the House. It was a great day in the Senate. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. But congratulations to Speaker Tim Moore. Congratulations to Senator Phil Berger. uh, Both elected to their fifth term. Yeah. And now Speaker Moore is the longest Longest serving speaker. Mm -hmm. Senator Berger still trails Senator Baznight, I believe, by a term or two. I think 14 years is what Senator Baznight served. Um, but anyway, it's a great day. Congratulations to everyone who was sworn in. 
It was wonderful, wonderful day. Prior to the opening session, the Senate put out their committee announcements on Tuesday, and there were some notable changes over on the Senate side. Senator Michael Lee, Republican, New Hanover County, came out of a bruising campaign this past fall. He is now a big chair. That means he's a an appropriations chair in the Senate. We call them big chairs. They're the ones who decide the big 27, 28 billion dollar budget. So Senator Brent Jackson is returning to that role and Senator Ralph Heiss, Michael Lee moves into that spot. Now, usually this is a spot that would be given to the majority leader. Kathy Harrington had this spot in past sessions. She moved on. But Senator Paul Newton opted to stay as Senate finance chair And so that opened up the spot for Senator Lee. But we do see a new Senate finance chair who will be co-chairing with Senator Newton and Senator Bill Rabin. Senator Jim Perry is the new finance chair over on the Senate side. And uh, congratulations to him. We'll have a link to the full list of Senate chairs and committee members in the show notes. After the session on Wednesday, Senator Berger and Speaker Moore spoke to the media about what they expected for the upcoming session. They announced that the two chambers are negotiating a 13-week ban on abortion. Senator Berger indicated that there will be some exceptions in this 13-week ban. Uh, This is a move from Speaker Tim Moore's position back during the campaign. He said he wanted what is a so-called fetal heartbeat bill. He seems to be moving past that, but the chambers seem to be on the same page as far as where they're going to go with this. This will be, I believe, one of the big issues that we are to see in this 2023 session. It will be marked by a veto by Governor Cooper. The speaker seemed to indicate Wednesday that he's got some Democrats that are talking to him about a 13-week ban. He did indicate that he had a few folks on board for that proposal. The other issue, sports wagering. That's going to come back in the 2023 session. Senator Berger made this announcement. I actually spoke to Senator Bill Rabin, the rules chairman, on Tuesday night. He says he definitely this bill is coming back. He also told me that medical marijuana is coming back, and he thinks this time he feels like he's got the votes to get it out of the Senate chamber. I asked him, what about the House? He says, we'll just worry about that later, but I'm getting it out of the Senate. Another thing that was discussed on Wednesday by Senator Berger, when he was giving his opening day remarks, he listed his top three priorities. And those were, one, education, two, Medicaid expansion, and three, protecting law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking into the future, it looks like the Senate knows what they're going to start and do big buckets of work on. Leading up, to the swearing-in session. We saw Senator Berger in the media a lot talking about this lawsuit that has been filed against Union County Schools over there breaking the 2004 school calendar law that dictates when schools can start and when they let out. Union County voted back in December to break that law, and a lawsuit was filed by a parent in Union County who happens to own a small business. 
She says in her complaint that she's going to lose up to $30,000 in income. They're breaking the law. She would like an injunction against Union County Schools. Now, before we get too far into this, let's do a little full disclosure that Sky and I, we represent the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. They are in support of the school calendar law. We also want to point out that NCTIA is a sponsor of this podcast. Now, there's a lot of well-meaning debate, differences of opinion on a school calendar, but there does seem to be some offense by legislators, especially in the Senate, that school districts would snub their nose at the rule of law. And I think this is something that we're going to see pop up in the General Assembly in 2023. As session gets underway, and you know, our last podcast was Donald Bryson, we also wanted to include someone who maybe has more opposition to the General Assembly and how they go about lobbying. So this week, we sat down with Ann Webb from the ACLU to talk through that. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Ann Webb. Senior Policy Counsel at the ACLU of North Carolina. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Guy. Thanks, Brian. To start us off, tell us what the ACLU is. The ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union of North Carolina. We are the North Carolina um, home base of civil liberties and civil rights advocacy. We are connected to a national network of ACLU affiliates. We're in every state. Um, as well as Puerto Rico and the District of Columbia. So we work on the whole waterfront of issues, right? We work on all the issues that touch on civil rights and civil liberties. So that includes anything related to criminal justice reform, the legal system. It includes immigration. It includes racial justice overall, includes voting rights, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights. It really covers anything that would address your constitutional rights, and your liberty as an individual. So I think when people think of the ACLU, they think of being in court. How many cases are you actively involved in, in let's say a year? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure I know what our numbers are here at the ACLU of North Carolina. We have a legal team with, I think we're at six, maybe seven attorneys. Okay. Um, And so we're in civil litigation. Um, Our Goal is to be doing impact litigation cases that really seek to change the law on a critical issue or move the law forward on a critical issue. Um, and my guess would be that we're, we have dozens of cases going. And then, of course, we're also co-counsel with our national office, which has hundreds of attorneys <laughs> working all across the country, including in North Carolina, on a number of large cases. So talk to us about the policy side of your work. That's where we see you down at the General Assembly. You're you're down there walking the halls, lobbying on a number of bills. Can you talk about your work in that arena? My position sits on the policy and advocacy team at our at our affiliate, and we are um, a small but mighty team of lobbyists. 
we have at least three people registered every year, plus usually a few more. And our job is to monitor all the bills that might affect civil rights and civil liberties, identify where the priorities are, and do our best to defend all North Carolinians' rights in the legislature. So that's really a very broad mandate. I think our biggest challenge is prioritization. Mm -hmm. Um, And we spend a lot of time thinking about what can we do? Where can we make a difference? Where are other people working? Where can we fill in a gap? It's a tough position to be in because we don't get to specialize. Mm. And we do try to be the specialist in certain areas. So we are always going to be the group that is thinking the most about the First Amendment. We are always going to be the folks who are thinking the most about the Fourth Amendment and right to privacy. So those are always going to be sort of touchstone ACLU issues. In addition to that, we find that we are often the ones who are most focused on incarceration rates, sort of criminalization in general, what it means to have more and more people in prison in the state, as far as progressive lobbyists who are in the building. And then on a a range of the other issues that we work on, we have really strong coalition partners. And so we're working kind of in collaboration with other groups. A lot of your work is defensive. Bills have been filed. You have a concern about them. You go to a legislator, you express your concerns, hopefully get it changed. Maybe even the bill won't pass. But you're also doing offensive work. You guys were very involved in criminal justice reform coming out of the Senate. Senator Danny Britt was taking the lead on that. But can you talk a little bit about those two lanes you go in, offense and defense. Sure. Yeah. I have to say, we wish we weren't doing so much defense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's not where we'd like to be spending our time. We feel like there is plenty of really good work to do, just fixing the laws that we have, addressing real problems that we all agree are there, devastatingly high numbers of people we have in our prison system, the folks who are aging in our prison system, who are elderly and are costing the state enormous amounts of money, the pipeline of young kids into the criminal legal system instead of into our workforce. Um, You know, there are just so many areas where we could all be working together, where I think we could find a lot of agreement. Mm -hmm. And instead we find ourselves pulled toward a lot of this defensive work. And I wish (laughs) that we weren't so focused on some of these issues that seem to be primarily about winning primary elections from my perspective, I know, you know, there are folks who bring some of these issues to the General Assembly because they feel really passionately about them. But it's hard to imagine that given what we see in the polls about how important some of these issues are to voters, and frankly, some of these issues just are not priorities for voters. Mm -hmm. They're really only priorities for a kind of a super minority of primary voters. So yeah, we are in the mix working on trying to protect the right to access abortion in the state. We are always going to be out front in trying to protect the rights and the dignity of LGBTQ people, um, the right to exist for trans people. And we are going to be out in front making sure that immigrants are treated with dignity and as full human beings in our, um, in our system. And that, you know, I'm proud of that work, but also wish we didn't have to do it. Right. And on the offensive side, you have been a part of some legislation, major legislation that's come out of the General Assembly. So when I was just coming on at the end of 2018, we were really riding the wave of having passed through and started implementing the Raise the Age Bill. And that was such a wonderful example of what a decade's worth of work to get a bipartisan coalition together to do the best thing for our kids could look like. I think we 
want to see more examples like that. We want to see more opportunities. We want to be approached by folks on both sides of the aisle Mm -hmm. with ideas like that, that we can help broker because we would love to be in that role. I think another great example is in the criminal justice reform space. I can't take credit for the second chance act work, but because I know that was also more than a decade of, um, of work to build a coalition and to find the right mix of support for that. But I think second chances for folks who have criminal records who have criminal charges is such a win-win. Mm-hmm. It's a win-win for our economy. It gets people into the workforce. It's a win-win for these families who may be struggling. Maybe they have someone in the family who um, whose driver's license is kind of suspended for a really long period of time. And if they can just get that expunction and, or get that fee paid, they can make a huge difference for their family in terms of providing and, and being able to work steadily. And so these are places where we can all be proud of bipartisan work that has happened. And the ACLU wants to be in, wants to be supporting that work. Let's say there's a bad bill, in your opinion, filed. How do you approach talking to a legislator about that or entering their office and not wanting to come from like a confrontational place? That's a great question. You know, we try to move strategically. Um, we try to talk to folks who are going to be willing to have a conversation. One of the questions that we always have to ask ourselves is, what is a realistic goal here? Is the goal here to mitigate the concern, to try to reduce the, what we perceive as the potential harm of the bill? Or is the goal here to try to stop the bill altogether? Our approach vastly differs depending on that, right? So if if we can go in, um, let's say we see a bill that has a criminal penalty in it that we're really concerned about. We have found that it is effective to go and talk with folks about Here's what the Sentencing Commission would say about that. Here's how this matches with other similar criminal penalties. Here's why we think this won't be a deterrent. Those kind of conversations. And we have found that that has been really effective. On the social issues where we have the most political division, negotiation is less effective. It depends on the political environment. And of course, that's changing. And this session will be different than last session, I imagine. Um, And there may be places where we will have to make decisions about mitigation versus trying to stop something from being enacted at all. But we try to come from a confident place where our goal is to protect as many people as we believe can be protected. It may be that we don't approach a sponsor of a bill that we don't think is going to be open to talking with us. I wish that weren't the case. Mm -hmm. I wish we could have those conversations. And I think we try to have those conversations as much as we can. But people feel passionately about these issues on both sides, and it can be tough. The other approach that we've really tried to put at the fore in recent years is not having it be me or one of our lobbying team who's kind of having that conversation, but instead bringing people into the building who are affected by these policies directly um, and having them have that conversation. Because, you know, I can represent what it might feel like to, let's say, a trans teenager to have a piece of legislation that targets them moving. But having that trans teenager in the building speaking about their life experience is infinitely more powerful. And those have been some of the most powerful moments that I've witnessed in the General Assembly is approaching either in committee or in one-on-one a legislator who who we know may not agree with the position that, that we're proposing, but bringing in that directly impacted person is really powerful. And we have found that there's a more reception to hearing that experience and listening to that experience. Um, So that is something that we are going to be doing more and more of. When I was doing child advocacy work 20 years ago, I have a child advocacy bill. 
I believe it was a child welfare bill, and it had some criminal penalties in it. And I remember the ACLU came and said, we have a concern about your bill. And I was a little confused, like, no, this is a child welfare bill. What is your client's concern about this? And she said, "Uh, my client is the Constitution. (laughs) Is that how you see it, Anne? I'm sure you have donors. I'm sure you have a board of directors, but... You sometimes have to take what may be an unpopular stand. Is it a child welfare bill? What do you mean you're concerned? But that that has to be tough at times, right? It is tough. And I I love the way she said that because I haven't thought to say it that way, but it is how we feel. I think the biggest misconception about the ACLU in the lobbying space is that we're somehow aligned with one party or another or that we aren't truly nonpartisan defenders of the Constitution. And nothing could be further than the truth. We pride ourselves when both Democrats and Republicans are mad at us. Mm. And trust me, they have both been mad at us. Right. And so, you know, and we've we've even had to take tough stances in in coalition spaces where we just disagree with, you know, other members of progressive coalitions on certain topics. And it's not easy. But I do think that's one of the benefits of working for a 100 plus year old organization. Mm. The documentation that we have of our um of how serious we are about sticking to our constitutional values is real. Now, of course, those evolve. I think there is certainly a clearer commitment to racial justice at the ACLU than there ever has been before. But I don't see any conflict between that and our commitment to the Constitution. I mean, the First Amendment is tricky, right? Freedom of speech is very tricky, especially in the context of racial justice. Yes. And that has been, you know, a publicly aired conflict within the ACLU. I think, you know, folks have seen the coverage. The truth is, I think that's an important evolution for our organization, for our country, to really think about how do we stay true to the value of free speech without using it as a cover um, or allowing it to be a cover for hate to grow in our country. To your point about being aligned with one party or another, I I do want to point out that at the time I was doing child advocacy work. Democrats were firmly in charge, Democratic governor. But I felt like the ACLU has always been in a defensive posture. Even just as much then, folks file bills, well-intended bills, but they just haven't thought through the Constitution. So imagine you're always, just as they were back then, giving constitutional lessons here and there with legislators who will listen. Absolutely. And Frankly, that's like the part of my job I like best. You know, I love it when legislators reach out and say, what does the ACLU think about this? And from both sides of the aisle, and that has happened from both sides of the aisle, where folks have come forward and said, you know, this bill's about to be in committee. Do you think there's something we could do to address the Fourth Amendment concern here? Mm-hmm. Or do you think there's something we could do to make sure that the right to privacy is balanced with the interest of law enforcement here? Mm-hmm. And that is where I feel like, really good about the relationship between the ACLU and the legislature and as a nonpartisan entity, you know, we know there's not enough staff over the General Assembly. Like, I'm happy to be the expert on Fourth Amendment privacy issues. Just reach out, you know, Mm -hmm. call Mm -hmm. anytime. Mm -hmm. So let's take a step back and talk about you personally. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Tell us about yourself. So as I like to say it, I am a Tar Heel. Oh, this is prepared. <laughs> <laughs> she sat up taller and was like, so. <laughs> so I'm a UNC grad. Okay. Right. And I am a Tar Heel born, but I'm not a Tar Heel bred. Okay. okay. <laughs> so I was born in Durham. 
Um, my parents were here for about 10 years, loved it here. And my dad got a job in Ohio and we moved up there when I was about three. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in Cincinnati, but like with parents who deeply regretted leaving North Carolina (laughs) and wanted to come down here and visit and talked about UNC as this great school and really kind of sold it. And so my big sister came down to go to UNC and then I followed her down. And then we both married people from North Carolina and my parents are here now and everybody has consolidated. (laughs) There are a lot of people here from Ohio, doesn't it feel? It does actually (laughs) a little bit feel that way. (laughs) When you came back to Carolina, where did you go to law school? So I graduated from Carolina. I stayed in North Carolina for about four more years. Really got to know the state because I was working as a paralegal and doing a lot of outreach around the state. And so drove all over Eastern North Carolina and got to know the state really well met my now husband, and we decided to go to D.C. so I could go to law school at American University. And I thought we would come right back. Like, I, that was the plan. I was like, North Carolina is where we're from. But then I got this really great opportunity to work at the U.S. Department of Labor and kind of got sucked in for about six years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I decided I needed a big change, and we also just missed home, and um, we were ready to put down roots here. So we came on back. And your decision to work at the ACLU, that coordinate with you coming home? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was looking for the right thing to kind of shake up my career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had been sitting behind a desk writing a lot of legal briefs and regulations and just really kind of stuck in like a very solitary work environment. Mm -hmm. Loved the work, you know, cared deeply about the work of the labor department, but I really wanted to be working with people again. And Um, the opportunity to learn about lobbying, get into the policy space, really work on things, you know, that aligned with my heart was very exciting. But a lot different as far as work environment. I mean, you're down at the General Assembly. I see you every day. There's 500 people there. It's frenetic energy all the time or most of the time. But yeah, was that a hard transition? It was a huge learning curve. Yeah. Um, Learning the politics, learning the process, learning the people, finding my way around the building. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, I love to mentor new folks who are interested in doing policy work because I feel like I was learning this space so recently that I really understand like what you need. And I'm like, you need a map mm-hmm. <laughs> and you, you need mm-hmm. to know how the numbering system works. Yeah. And I still don't know what the <laughs> are. Yeah. You need to know what a PCS is. You know, like these are... Um, they can learn about those things on our podcast. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you need to listen to this podcast. Yeah. yeah, It was a huge learning curve. And I was so lucky because um, Susanna Birdsong was the, was the person who hired me and she had been lobbying for several years for the ACLU and is now, you know, moved on. But she provided so much of that training that I needed to understand mm-hmm. how to do this work. And what would you say is your favorite part about lobbying in North Carolina? Aside from fried squash on Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really enjoy that feeling when, you know, if you're sitting in one of the courtyards and you're kind of bumping into folks, like that sort of community feeling of like, we're all here to work on this stuff together. Let's, you know, let's introduce each other, make sure everybody knows each other, that kind of congenial feeling that you can get in the, in the general assembly, you know, not every day, but mm-hmm. some days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a really that's it's very fun and it's satisfying to to feel like you know folks are working hard and they want to make the state better. 
Yeah. Let me ask you about sitting at the General Assembly. We all have our space at the General Assembly. Our space is speaker's corner table right outside of his conference room. That's where we plop. Your space is first floor. 1,200 court. 1,200 court back in that conference table. If you need to get up with Ann Webb, you walk around there. Why is that your space? You know, I inherited that table. Did you? It was it was an established safe zone. Okay. <laughs> when I joined. Okay. And, you know, I think it might partly be because Pricey Harrison's LA is kind of a friend. Okay. <laughs> um, but you'll have to ask some other folks who have been around a little longer. All right. How, it must we, be, how we end up there. It must be a good viewing spot because you can see people come in the back of the building from there. Yes. You can see a lot of traffic. Um, but I don't even, I don't know what to tell you. It's right. been years and it's been, that's been the spot. And when I meet new progressive lobbyists, we point them there and say, if you're looking for somebody come to 1200. So who should we ask? Who's the chair of this committee that decided <laughs> to put you guys back there? You know, Chris Parks might have an idea. Okay. All right. <laughs> and so for listeners, if come to the general assembly, there are four main quadrangles in the main building and then there's a second floor and a first floor. So there's tables with chairs. Lobbyists all have kind of their workspace. It's not assigned. You just kind of sit down and sometimes people take your space and you just got to stare them down. Has that ever happened to you guys? Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So on the flip side, what is your least favorite part about this type of work? I think it is the unpredictable schedule. Yeah. Mm. And maybe that just reveals something about me, but it is so frustrating how late notice you can get of things happening how nobody ever knows when we're going to be in session and when we're not. You know, I understand why that is. You know, it gives the corner offices some extra power and and it's a lot to keep track of. And there's a lot of work, you know, there's some of it's unintentional. It's just hard to keep everything going and the staff are doing the best they can. But some of that last minute notice stuff is not in good faith as far as the public being notified of what is happening in the General Assembly and being able to participate in the process. And that's what really gets at me. Um, you know, when we have folks who really care about an issue who are waiting for me to tell them when, you know, the committee hearing is going to be, and then I can only give them like 12 hours notice. That's a shame because these are folks, you know, these are North Carolinians who deserve to be part of that process. All right. So we are within days, couple weeks of the General Assembly coming back and starting their business in earnest. How is the ACLU preparing for this coming session? You hit on it earlier with maybe a mitigation strategy is going to be implemented versus uh, relying on the veto. Yeah, your general approach. You guys are getting ready just like everyone else. How do you do it? Yeah, you know, we are working really closely with all of our partners. We are looking at what's happening in other states. We are gathering that information up, trying to figure out what might be coming. Um, This is on the defensive side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're rallying the troops, to be Mm -hmm. honest. You know, we expect there to be a lot of fights this session. We wish that weren't the case. And we would love to encourage leadership to reconsider having these social fights in the General Assembly and, you know, instead focus on real priorities for the state. And we'd be glad to talk with anybody who needs a rationale (laughs) for that or, you know, wants to think that through. But, you know... Absent that, we are really preparing ahead, 
getting ourselves ready to educate the media, educate the public about what's really going on in the General Assembly, you know, talking about how we can bring folks in to really make clear how the public feels about some of these policies and who's really affected. And we're also, you know, trying to find the places where we can accomplish things that are outside of those defensive agendas. You know, mm-hmm. we we would love to see um, some really winnable bipartisan criminal justice reforms happen. And we are, you know, we're in a vigil outside the governor's mansion right now. This is a, this is something that we've pushed both Democrats and Republicans on. And we know that there is bipartisan support for ending the death penalty for people with severe mental illness, getting these really elderly and and ill people out of our prison system. It's costing us money. We don't need to be having a nursing home at mm-hmm. Central Prison, you know, there are ways that we could address that and get folks into the community with their families. We believe strongly that there is support for ending juvenile life without parole. We don't need to put young people who make serious mistakes behind bars for the rest of their life with no opportunity for parole. That's just not how we should be treating people. There, the list goes on. So we would, we are, we care about those things. We are talking to folks about how we can keep those moving, and we hope that there will be an appetite to do some of that if all the air doesn't get taken up by stuff that seems less important to me what is your pie in the sky one piece of legislation that would be your crowning moment or something that you really want to see pass in north carolina this is both my personal wish and also the top priority for the aclu of north carolina is to decarcerate our state it's to Mm -hmm. get the number of people in our prison system down and i think a really popular politically and feasible way to do that would be to decriminalize marijuana. Now, I don't want to say that that's the only thing we need to do, but like if you pull that issue, people like it. It seems like it should be doable politically and it could accomplish so many other goals, right? Getting people in the workforce, keeping families together, making sure you got two parent homes, whatever your perspective is on why it's good to keep people out of the prison system, you could win with that issue. I mean, we are seeing some movement in that direction, right? We had the Senator Bill Raven bill for medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks are getting caught up into that. As far as criminalization, getting the marijuana right now is, of course, illegal. You see hope? I mean, I appreciate so much all the work that Senator Raven and Senator Lee have been doing to slowly but surely bring their party along on this issue. And obviously... We don't think that that bill does enough. (laughs) I don't think anybody does who cares about decriminalizing marijuana. But it's important work. I appreciate the approach they've taken. We fully support that effort and hope it is just the first step. And I hope that they can succeed this session. I think there's a real possibility. They made a huge amount of progress last session. And it was very heartening to see people who seemed dug in really open their minds to it. All right. So sort of along the pie in the sky question If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in our politics today, what would it be? So I already mentioned my preference for the calendar to be clearer. You did. Which I know Jeff Tiberi already (laughs) took. So that was his. So I'm going to take a different one, which is I think if we are not going to have a real part-time legislature, we need to have a full-time legislature with full-time legislator pay. Mm -hmm. I think it would bring some equity to who is able to win and do that job. And I think it would also bring some reality to what we're actually doing here. Right. Let's just be honest about it. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Ann Webb, 
We appreciate everything you do in North Carolina politics, the work you do in the General Assembly. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you all so much. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I really appreciate the way Anne and that team over there, Daniel Bow and others, the way they represent that organization. They do it professionally. It's fact-based. They come with legal arguments. They don't always win, but I know just watching them work in the General Assembly, they are communicating, I believe, effectively to legislators. You know, guys like Senator Danny Britt, he does work really well with them and he at least wants their input does he take it that's you know i don't know all the details of that but they seem to have a good working relationship but thank you ann for coming on to the podcast and sharing your story and uh the work of the aclu tweet of the week this week's tweet of the week is from lucille sherman she's at underscore lucille sherman and her tweet was First day of North Carolina legislative session is giving major back-to-school energy vibes. <laughs> it is. Sorry, it just says back-to-school energy, no vibes. <laughs> I added that. <laughs> but it definitely is true. Oh, it was good. Everyone put on their best outfit, except for me. Um, and I'll get to that a me little Me either. Later. I did not have my best outfit on because I had some wardrobe problems on Wednesday, but I was feeling that... You've got one today, too. I do. I'm wearing my Tim Moore khaki pants. (laughs) Uh, I love my Tim Moore khaki pants. And my brown shoes, just like Tim Moore. But it was great to see everyone dressed in their best suit, most in their best suit. And you and I, as we were walking around Wednesday, we said, it was so cute to see the little boys... In their little suits. In their little suits and bow ties. Oh, they looked great. So much pride, a lot of photos. Um, It's great seeing legislators with their families. It's like back in the day when I would see a school teacher at the grocery store and I'd see like, wait, you got a husband and you got kids? Like you have a life? I didn't know you smoked. Like stuff like that. And They were smoking in the grocery store? Well, this is the 70s. Okay. And 80s. It was fun to me. The kids of legislators, husbands, wives, fun stuff. I agree. And the energy, just everybody is so happy to be there. No one's mad about how long something's taken or no action, whatever. Fighting about things. Everybody is in a good mood. I have to note this. Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson had some really nice things to say about Governor Jim Hunt, who was there to see his daughter, Rachel Hunt, get sworn into the Senate. And that was just a nice moment. Bill Rabin even taught, Senator Rabin talked about how he would like the temperature to come down in 2023. I hope that happens. But yeah, it was such a fun day. And it was fun seeing Republicans introducing their family to Democrats and vice versa. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we kept that rule fight 
just punted that. Yeah. Uh, Definitely a do politics better day. Yes. And kudos to Leader Reeves because he could have made a stink yesterday. He could have said, look, we're not, we're not working under these rules, even if they're temporary. Mm -hmm. You know, that he's such a good leader in that way and how just bringing down the temperature, you know, we don't have to fight every day. If you're always fighting, it's not effective. Okay. What was your wardrobe malfunction? And is this why you were so late in getting me yesterday? Yeah. Getting Us away. being reunited this week reminds me of the anxiety that it gives me when you show up late. Yeah. Sorry. I went to New Orleans last week. I was on vacation. My mm-hmm. wife and I went to New Orleans. And when you go to New Orleans, with, or if you go anywhere with my wife, we're going to do a food tour. And we're going to do food tours every day. So we just ate our way through New Orleans, and it was so good, and I had such a good time. Now, we got like 20,000 steps every day. Mm -hmm. We worked out every morning because I'm trying to lose weight. But, man, I kind of, I'm just. You told me you lost weight. Didn't you tell me you lost weight? Yeah, but my suits aren't fitting. So I have two suits left that fit. And when Is I one say, of them that seersucker one from Amazon? No, no, no. That oh, one. <laughs> that one does. I'm talking about winter suits that work. And so Tuesday night I go to the the fundraiser uh, and I'm and I'm wearing a suit. I'm like, okay, I'll wear that suit Tuesday night. Then Wednesday I'll wear the blue suit. Now I have a lot of suits in my closet. I just can't fit into them. And so... Yesterday you were wearing a sweater under your jacket. Well, I'm going to get to that. Okay. So Wednesday... Tuesday night, I wear a gray suit. That all works. That's fine. Then Wednesday, I wake up, ready to go to session. I pull down the blue suit, and I can't get them buttoned. Like, I get them on. I'm feeling okay. I'm like, these are a little snug. And I'm just, like, sitting there going, ugh, ugh, just trying. And, and I'm, like, shaking, and I'm barely, the, the, the metal clasp are barely coming together. And I just give up, and I'm like, I don't have a suit to wear. Can I wear the suit I wore last night? I can't do that. So I put on some some slacks, and I'm just wearing a sports coat. And I was so disappointed. And even the sports coat yesterday, I can't get that buttoned. I wear it like you would wear a shawl. You know, like it's just something that goes over my shoulders, but I can't button it. So... I a shawl. Yeah, like so. I put on a little uh, vest. Under. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. If you can't fit into your stuff, why add another layer? It was the fake out. It's the fake out. So I didn't want people to look at me and go, "Look, he can't button up his button." I wanted people to look at me and go, "He's got a." Let sw- me break. Wait, hold on. He's got a sweater on. That's why he can't button up his. I was doing a fake out yesterday to other people. To other this people. is. Nobody thinks about you as much as you think about you. I don't. I bet it didn't even cross other people's minds. They're not looking at your outfit and looking for, wow, like GQ over there. We always talk about people. <laughs> you and I are at the General Assembly, passing notes, texting, look at that right there. You don't think people are doing that to us? You have to live that way. It's not I, something you can control what I other got, people say about you. I, Stoicism. Bottom line, bottom line is I got to get this weight off. Either that or I need but to just you break. told me you were losing weight. I know, but I think I'm getting buff from lifting weights and all oh, that. Oh, oh. So like five seconds ago, it was that you were, you were too heavy to get into it. Now it's that it's just muscle. Well, I think I need to 
I think what's happened is I'm doing a lot of sit-ups, and I think I'm building a layer of muscle under all this fat. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, my yeah, it's just so. It it was just yesterday was tough. It was so tough. Even getting on those slacks was like I was like, what in the world? I'm like sucking in and I'm shaking. I'm trying to get. I finally get it. But I feel I also felt this. I made sure that my belt was on really well because I felt like at any moment those pants could just explode. Ooh. Yeah. So I've got like two weeks to get this together. The gray suit still works, but I, I got to get this together. Either that or I need to go buy some suits, and I don't want to do that. Sounds like a little conundrum. It is a conundrum. Well, as always, we are so excited to return back to y'all in 2023. And we're excited to get into the legislative session. We'll be covering the news of the week, what's happening at the General Assembly, and much more. So we will talk to you next week. But until then, please remember to do politics better.